Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A common twist in literature reveals that we were the monsters, not the external threat. The twist in Christ's first coming is that we, our sins, are what we need to be delivered from, not some external oppression. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series, Advent, with this sermon entitled Christ, the Sustainer of the Weary, which covers Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this time together this morning. Thanks for all the ways in which you are continually pursuing us. Father, even even when we don't want to be pursued, you are pursuing us. We ask this morning that we would be open to your pursuit, that we'd open our hearts to you, our minds, our ears, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I brought my phone up on uh, on stage with me this morning, not because I have any plan to do anything with it other than to say this. We know that we have a problem with anyone who has a smartphone with texting and driving. We know that's an issue. I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. If you have a guilty conscience right now, that's between you and the Lord, okay? Did you know that we have an issue with texting and walking? There are studies that have been done that are showing how many injuries happen per year from people who are walking and texting or reading and and running into things. It's a real phenomenon, it's a real issue. There was one study that was done that between 2007 and 2017, this is a Reader's Digest, uh, in in that 10 year period, there were over 11,000 reported injuries, many of which resulted in hospitalization and some of which resulted in deaths. In fact, in 2019, uh, we had the highest number of pedestrian deaths since 1990. I'm not sure what was going on in 1990, but It was before smartphones. They think now that the reason in 2019 those numbers are way up is because of the number of people who were so distracted by looking down at their phones that they're walking into harm's way, whether it be into an intersection or whether it be into a pole or whatever it might be. Look at this. In London, they've actually, you see the little white things there, the 118118? You'll see them in the next picture as well. Those are padding. That's padding that they've put on light poles because so many people were running into poles with their heads down texting. I hope my teenagers are taking note right now. I'm just messing. But this is us. It's not just teenagers. It's everybody. Start paying attention, if you haven't already, to how many people are walking around like this. We have all kinds of neck and shoulder and back issues going on because our posture is like this constantly. And, and it's so interesting because it's, it's kind of this, this picture of we're so enthralled with what's on here that we miss, we're not aware of what's going on around out there. So much so that they're walking into poles. By the way, do yourself a favor. Google texting and walking fails and watch the videos of people who have been videoed 
walking into things, and we not encourage you, I'm not encouraging you to laugh at other people's expense, but it is funny. Um, <laughs> but that's our posture. This is, this, is, this is who we are as a society right now. This is what we look like. And what a fitting metaphor, what a fitting metaphor for the spiritual reality of life in general. Because what this little device could represent is it could represent all of what the world tells us life is about. Okay, I want you to think big picture here. When you are born into this world, you are taught certain things explicitly and implicitly that this is what life should be about, is about. This is what you should chase. This is what you should pursue. This is what you should make your life about. And let's just imagine that all those pursuits, all those desires, all those longings, everything that we think is broken human beings, uh, life is about is is just wrapped up in this. And so what we do in life is we walk around like this thinking that this is what life is all about. And what the scriptures do is they lift our head up to see, oh, there's this whole awareness of the spiritual realm that I didn't know about, that I didn't think or know existed, but is real, is truth. Romans 1 tells us that we, as a people born into sin, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we have worshiped the created rather than the creator. If that could be summed up in one posture, it would be this. That spiritually, we are so unaware. We don't, we don't recognize the reality of the spiritual world around us because we're so enthralled with what we think life is all about. We're so enthralled with the created that we miss the creator. Advent, Advent, among many things, is a call to spiritual awareness. It's a call to lift our heads and see. It's a call to move away from hurried distraction and to move into unhurried peace. That word Advent, that word Advent means anticipation, longing, expectation. Those are all words that get at it, but the word that it most insinuates or, or describes is the word in the English language of coming, one who is coming. That would be the, the Christian theological perspective on Advent. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus. And it's a word that we would say, there is someone coming. That's what Advent means. And so for us, for the Christian, it's, it's twofold. It's the one who has come and the one who is coming again. So we're looking both ways. We're looking back and rejoicing in Christ who has come, the Messiah, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. But we're also looking forward in anticipation and longing for the one who is to come. Here's how we want to do this, this Advent season. We want to prepare our hearts and our minds for Advent, for the coming of Christ and the looking back at his first coming and the anticipatory looking forward of his second coming by walking through four passages of scripture that are found in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And these four passages that we're going to walk through in the next four weeks the next four Sundays, 
These are called the servant songs. Now, that's our language as observers of Scripture, the, the writers of Scripture, Isaiah, he did not give that language, but as we look at these four passages, we have called them the servant songs. Here's why. They're all four about a servant who is going to come, and they're all poetic, possibly sung by those who believed upon Yahweh, the God of Israel, during that day. So servant songs, or maybe perhaps servant poems, but they're all about a servant who is to come. Let me set up Isaiah for you just a little bit here. Isaiah prophesied around 700 years before Christ came the first time. Around 700 years. So I just want you to, again, anytime we throw out big numbers, it's easy to just hear that and go, uh, okay, 700 years. But that's a long time. It's a, it's a significant amount of time. And God, through his Holy Spirit, is empowering Isaiah as he's writing the infallible and errant word of God. And as he's writing down, he's prophesying. Now, what does prophesying mean? Prophecy uh, can mean, certainly an element of prophecy is predicting what will come. Most of us probably think, if you've been in or around church, you probably think that that's what prophecy is. Uh, most Old Testament prophecy is actually what we would say, you want to categorize it more broadly in saying that this is God's mouthpiece this person is God's mouthpiece, whether it be Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Daniel, and then all the ones in the back of your Old Testament that we don't go to very often. We're not even sure how to pronounce their names. Zephaniah, Micah, Nahum, Obadiah, Malachi. These are all prophets of God, and this is how we characterize them. They are one's mouth, the mouthpiece of God, speaking truth. That's the, that's the main categorization of someone who is prophesying. They're speaking God's truth. Most of the time in the Old Testament, that's in the way of proclaiming judgment upon the people of God for their disobedience, for their apostasy. That's where we see most from the prophets. But over 300 times, we get what we call messianic prophecies, where these prophets are speaking truth about the Messiah, the promised one, who is to come. These are messianic prophecies. What is he going to look like? What is it going to be like? What, what will he do? How will he come when he comes? That's what messianic prophecies are. And so when you think of the book of Isaiah, I want you to think of Isaiah being like a mountain range. Full, each mountain in this range is a prophecy. And each prophecy is significant, and each prophecy is either in its judgment or either in its proclamation of what will come as a form of judgment or as a, as a form of hope for Israel. All of it is putting together this beautiful mountain range, but the four highest peaks in the mountain range of Isaiah are these four songs, these servant songs, because these four songs are about this servant Messiah who is to come, and Isaiah is so clear he is so clear about what this servant, this Messiah, Savior, is going to be, what he is going to be, and how he is going to come. These four songs, this is where they are. They're in Isaiah chapter 42, 1 through 9, and then 49, 1 through 7, 54 through 11, and then 52, 13 through 53, 12. That last one you may be most familiar with, that's the one that is most often quoted as it pertains to what Jesus as the coming Messiah would endure on the cross as he takes our transgressions upon himself. 
we'll conclude with that one on December 20th. Now, originally the plan was that we'd go in order, which makes sense. And Caleb was going to preach today, and he was going to preach Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. It was going to be focused on Christ, the tender physician. Uh, But I want to fill you in on a little bit of what's going on with Caleb and Mallory, and I want to stop and pray for them. The reason Caleb's not preaching today is two reasons. One, Mallory is almost 41 weeks pregnant. She's overdue. Uh, which is not a major deal. They're going to induce at the right time if, if uh, the sweet little baby girl has not come in the next couple of days. But there's something else going on that is important for us to pray about. We want to pray for a healthy baby girl. But we also want to pray for Alice. Alice is one of their three girls. Alice is one of the twins, and she's three. And she's been having a lot of leg pain, and they just discovered this week that uh, a little tumor in her knee um, and the doctors are confident that it's benign, uh, but, they're, but they have to do surgery tomorrow. And uh, so we want to pray that, the, that all would go well with the surgery, that the tumor would, in fact, be benign, and uh, that the baby would come Tuesday, not tomorrow. And so there's a lot going on in the Click household. And, uh, and so this may put us a little bit over time in terms of how long I normally go, but I want to pause and I want to pray for them. That's what we do as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is lift each other up before the throne of grace. So let's do that now for Caleb and Mallory. Father, we thank you for the clicks and we pray, oh God, that you would bring peace and assurance through your Holy Spirit into their hearts and into their minds. Father, your scripture says that your peace surpasses all understanding. So would that be the reality? May they experience that even now. Father, we do pray that this surgery tomorrow for Alice would be uh, successful in every way, that they would be able to get all of the tumor out, that her recovery would go uh, just as planned, and that there would not need to be any more surgeries and that that it would indeed be benign. Lord, we pray all of that and entrust her to you. And we pray for this baby girl that is ready to come. Lord, we pray that you would bring her out healthy, strong, crying, full of life. And we do pray, Lord, that in your timing, you would be so kind for that to be after tomorrow. And so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, your blessing over the Click family. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. Caleb had prepared for Isaiah 49. I had prepared for, or 42, I had prepared for Isaiah 50. So we're going to swap them. We're going to start with Isaiah 50, but here's the cool thing. It's out of order, which might really annoy some of you who like things to be in order. But in God's providence, I love that we're starting with this one, even though it wasn't the original plan. Because here's where we're starting. We're starting with looking at a passage about the one who is to come, the one who now for us has come and will come again, who is the sustainer of the weary. Wow. Is there any better text to start off Advent 2020 than to say that there is one, only one, who sustains the weary? If there was a word to sum up 2020 for many of us, it might very well be that word, weary. We're a weary people. Now, we're always a weary people. We just don't always recognize it. We're not always aware of our weariness. But for many of us, if not all of us, 2020 has taken us to our knees. 
And we would say without hesitation, yes, I am weary. And so there's good news for the weary laced all throughout the pages of the Bible. It's that there is one who is the sustainer of the weary. We get first introduced to this, this idea, this language of the one sustaining the weary, Jesus sustaining the weary in Isaiah chapter 50. Now, before I jump into it, I want to give you one more preface to the book of Isaiah. I'm going to use some props to do this. Um, I'm going to use my table here. I'm going to put it in the middle. I use my, uh, my chair here. I'm looking around for one other thing I can grab. I'll put it here. And um, let's take, guys in the booth are really nervous right now as to what I'm going to mess up. Um, let's take this mic stand and put it right here. Okay, so imagine with me, if you will, that these each represent three major moments in time. The first one is creation. This is when God began his work, his relationship with mankind when he created Adam and Eve and all that transpired from there. The table here in the middle, this represents when Christ came the first time. This is Christmas. This is the coming of Christ that we sing about, that we celebrate every year. And this represents when he comes again. This is the second coming of Christ. So when we're in the Old Testament, okay, before Jesus came, we're, we're always in this, somewhere in this time frame right here, and this represents a long period of time. We don't know how long it was from creation to the time that Christ came. We have guesses. We have good guesses, but we don't know the exact time frame. We do know, based on history and the time frame of the Bible, archaeology, so forth, that, like I said, Isaiah was prophesying about 700 years before Christ came. Now, here's the thing with prophecy. Old Testament prophecy when it's predicting what will happen, is often pointing, is always pointing to these two things. Now, when Christ came the first time, he at some level fulfilled all Old Testament prophecy, at some level. Some Old Testament prophecy in his first coming, he fulfilled completely. Others, he only fulfilled in part, and he will fulfill in, in full when he comes again. Okay, I want to make sure that's clear. Here's why that's important. There's all these people back here called the Israelites or the Hebrews that at the time of Jesus had broken into three major groups that we know as the Jews, different types of Jews, Jewish people. And when Jesus showed up onto the scene, these Hebrews, these Israelites who are now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and so on, they, they are the ones who when Jesus came, the vast majority of them missed him. They didn't believe upon him. They rejected him. Here's one of the major, major reasons why. They looked at all this Old Testament prophecy back here from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Nahum, Obadiah, Micah, Malachi, all these guys, and they looked at it, and they perceived it and translated it and interpreted it to be all fulfilled in one coming of the Messiah, not two. So, for example... You'll be back here and you'll be reading in a book, an Old Testament prophecy book, and you'll see a prophet literally almost in the same breath speak out of two sides of his mouth, so to, so to speak, where they'll say there, there'll be one coming who is a servant king. There'll be one coming who is a conquering king. 
And they're saying it almost simultaneously. And, and the, the Jewish people read that and thought, well, when he comes, he'll come as the conquering king. Yeah, okay, servant king, I'm not sure what to do with that. But what they were most looking for, what they were most anticipating, was one who would come and win the day in delivering them from Rome, militarily and politically, governmentally. That's what they were longing for. And so all the while, the first coming of Jesus is all about him coming as a servant. Him coming as the one, the lamb of God who would give his life on behalf of the sins of the world. Now he will come again as the conquering king. As Revelation says, with the sword coming out of his mouth, wow. Not sure what to do with that. That's going to be terrifying, but that's who he is, the conquering king. But that's in his second coming. In his first coming, he's the servant king. Now, he came as king in both. He came as king, servant king. He will come as king, conquering king. So he's fulfilled the prophecy, but we're in this already not yet tension. The kingdom of God has come, but it came in a way that the Jews didn't expect. They were looking for it all to come at once. So where are we in Advent now? In Advent, we're in the already not yet. We're looking back and saying the servant king has come because what God knew and willed to be most important for us is deliverance not from a government power, not from a military power, anything out there, but to deliver us from what we most need, which is deliverance from ourselves, from our sin, because that's what separates us from God. And so we look back and we celebrate the first coming and we look forward that there will be a day that what's being fulfilled in part now, the newness of life, the, the newness to come in Jesus will be experienced in full when he comes again. All things will be made new and there will be no more sin. I can remember being in Israel and uh, on a trip in 2016 and I loved our tour guide. He was a Jewish man that grew up there in Israel. And if I ever get to go back, I, I hope he can be my tour guide again. He was amazing. But he, he doesn't believe in Jesus. But he knows the Bible better than most Christians. And as we had gotten to know each other over the course of the week that we were there, I remember we asked him, I said, what? You know the Bible so well. What? Why don't you? And I'm, when I say Bible, I mean Old and New Testament. He's quoting New Testament like most of us couldn't quote. I said, why, why, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And this was his answer. It was short, it was to the point, but it told me everything I needed to know. He said, and he quoted Isaiah, he said, because the lion is not lying with the lamb. The infant is not lying with the serpent. In other words, they were expecting one coming of the Messiah where everything that will happen in this second coming, they expected on the first. Because what do the scriptures tell us? That there will be a day when, in the new heavens and the new earth, the lion lies with the lamb. The serpent lies with the infant, and all is at peace, and all is made well. But because that hasn't happened yet, they rejected Jesus. They're still looking for an outward salvation when what they got before that becomes a reality in its fullness is we got a savior who deals with our hearts first in his first coming. And then all the fullness of his kingdom in his second. His kingdom that has come already 
but not yet. I hope that makes sense and helps you understand a little bit of how prophecy works in the Bible and how it points us to both comings of Christ and how he fulfills these prophecies. Okay, here's what I want to do. I've got 10 minutes. I I get myself in this bind every Sunday, don't I? Um, I want to walk through Isaiah chapter 50. I'm going to give you a few things to think about uh, as we think about this passage as Jesus is the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 4, this is where the messianic prophecy begins. Six things to be aware of. And some of y'all just went six in 10 minutes. I got to see this happen. Yeah, um, me too. All right, so awareness of of our weariness. That's where it starts. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Old Testament prophecy almost always is in present tense, so it can be a little confusing. You think, okay, is this Isaiah talking about himself? No, this is Isaiah talking about the one to come and what he will do and be. And so Jesus, I'm gonna show you what we need to be aware of when we think about Advent being a call to spiritual awareness, to take our posture from this to this I'm going to show you how Jesus in the New Testament is the fulfillment, the fulfillment of these things prophesied here in chapter 50 of Isaiah. Awareness of our weariness, it starts there. We have to recognize, admit, acknowledge, confess, get out there that we are a weary people. And it's not just because 2020 has been hard. It's because that's who we are. Sin beats us down. The nature of who we are apart from Christ And even those of us who are in Christ, we continue to struggle in this already not yet. The king who has come, but the longing for him to bring all of the fullness of the kingdom. And so we're in this tension every day with our sin nature. Uh, We're we're delivered from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. Uh, That's to come in the second coming. And so we're here, we're in this struggle and we're weary, we're tired. And we have to admit it. This is, this is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it, the great German theologian, said the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, says this. He says, admitting weakness is the doorway to, to, to true strength. Confessing foolishness is the first step toward wisdom. Then he says this. Denying weakness doesn't mean you're strong. Minimizing your sin doesn't make you righteous. You know, there's, a, there's this whole phenomenon within Christianity, especially Western Christianity, that's been going on for decades, if not centuries, where we have somehow defined spiritual maturity by how well we hide our sin. We, we've defined spiritual maturity by how well we mask our weakness or our weariness because there's this false bravado, especially among men, this, this masculinity that says, if I show you that I'm weak, then you've won. And the Bible says, start there. Start with your weakness. That's actually biblical masculinity. Doesn't mean that you're walking around a wimp. It just means that you're starting with the reality that we're broken, that we're weary, that we're in need of of the one, the only one who can sustain us and deliver us from our weariness and give us the strength that we long for. We have to start there. And Jesus, it says here in the prophecy, it says that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. What did Jesus say? When he showed up, he said, come. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He sustains the weary. If we can't admit that we are a weary people spiritually, not just emotionally and physically, but in every facet, if we can't start there, then Jesus is not going to be of much value to us. Jesus only manifests as our fire insurance, not our daily sustaining Savior for the weary. Secondly, if Advent is a call to awareness, then we have to be aware of his obedience You have to be aware of his obedience. Chapter 50, verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward when presented with all kinds of temptation. Remember the temptation in the wilderness from Satan? He didn't turn back. He didn't give in. He was perfectly obedient. Remember when he could have uh, said, you know, oh, I'm not going to do this. The very reason that I came was not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as, as he's wrestling with the Father, he could have turned back, but he didn't. He was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And his obedience is the first tenet that makes the gospel a joyous celebration for us because we're not obedient. Because theoretically, there's two ways to be right with God. The first one is that you're obedient in every way, in your emotions, in your will, in your motive, in your thoughts, in your actions, in every part of your being, you never, ever sin. And that's not possible. So it's not really a way. So there's only one other way, that someone else is is obedient in our place. That's Jesus. Philippians 2 says this, says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, here it is, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have to be aware of his obedience and why that's good news for us, the disobedient. We have to be aware, thirdly, of his humiliation. Look at verse six. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Do you remember what happened to Jesus? The whole essence of why he came the first time was to be humiliated, to be obedient in our place and to be humiliated in our place to be scourged, to be beaten, to be hung on a cross, to be spit upon. Look at Mark chapter 14. It says, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They beat him to a bloody pulp before he ever even got to the cross. He was humiliated on our behalf. Why is that so significant? Here's Isaiah 700 years before telling, this is what the servant who comes is going to do. He's going to be humiliated. Why is that significant? Because you and I should be the ones who are humiliated by the wrath of God. But he's the obedient one. He's the one who's humiliated. Fourthly, awareness of his vindication. Look at verses 7 and 8. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Vindication in the scriptures is the same Hebrew and Greek word that's used for just and righteous. So his vindication is that he is the just one. He is the righteous one. And because he is just and right and obedient, he is the one, only one through whom we are vindicated. Vindication is another way of thinking of resurrection. The victory over sin and death and hell through the righteous and just work of Jesus. We gotta be aware of his innocence. Look at verse nine. Behold, the Lord God helps me Who will declare me guilty? The answer is no one. No one will declare him guilty. He is purely, truly, fully, completely innocent. Hebrews 4, 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The next verse says this. Why is that important? Because he was without sin, because he was innocent. Then we get to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy in our time of need. Through faith in Jesus, his innocence is our innocence. His obedience is our obedience. His humiliation is not our humiliation, but his vindication is. Do you see the progression here? We admit our weariness, and then the rest is all about him. I'm weary, oh Jesus. And he said, okay, I got good news for you. I got good news. I was obedient in your place. I lived the perfect life that you can't live, achieving the standard that you can never achieve. I was righteous in your place. I took the penalty in your place. I was humiliated for you. I rose to newness of life in your place and giving you the same power over death that you have. And all of it was because I was innocent. Who can declare me guilty? So now through faith in me, dear child, who can declare you guilty? If you're in Christ... The answer is resounding, no one. So where does it end? It bookends with recognizing our weariness, but then look at verses 10 and 11. There must be awareness of our reliance upon him and him alone. Verse 10 says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Verse 11, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Here's what verses 10 and 11 are saying. He's saying there is one who is coming For us who has come, who is the light of the world. Walk in his light 
and receive the newness of light, be, taking out, be, be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into a new kingdom of the beloved Son of God. When you walk in his light, you will never walk in darkness again. What did Jesus say? One of the many things he said when he showed up? He said this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 11 is scary, because here's what God's saying. If you don't want that, if you reject the light of the world to come, then go ahead and keep living by the light of your own torch. And in so doing, you will live in torment, both now and forevermore. My torch, my posture, his light, his glory. My favorite Christmas song is Oh Holy Night. And I have a lot of favorite lyrics in that song, but this might be my favorite. It says, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. A weary world. That's, that's you and me. And so do you know that you're weary? And if so, are you letting the Savior who has come, the Savior who was sent to sustain the weary, are you running to him? Are you looking to something else to sustain you? How does he sustain us? Remember, it's with a word. You know what that word is? Come. Come unto me, all who are weary. I will give you rest. Father, we want to come to you. King Jesus, we want to come to you, the suffering servant. Because you are the only one who sustains our weary souls. Forgive us, O oh God, because we are a people who so quickly forget that. And we run to so many other things to sustain us. But Jesus, you never relent. You never stop. You always keep pursuing. You are good. So Jesus, may the light of your light, may it flood our dark hearts and sustain us not just this day, but forevermore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing to our sustaining Savior. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.